Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Well, thank you all for coming out this evening getting a little taste of my childhood out there, the cooler temperatures. Oh, it's funny that my coworkers are like, oh, it's so cold. It's like, no, you guys, you guys are kind of wimped. You guys cancel outdoor recess at minus 10. My last school, we canceled it at minus 20, so it's not that cold out there. All right, but anyways, uh, we're continuing through Genesis. We're nearing the end of the prehistory section, so uh, last time they had me fill in, we ended with the ark being on the water, and we left it with the cliffhanger there. So what's going to happen to Noah and all the animals? Are they going to make it? So through our continued retelling here of the flood, we often end up truncating the narrative, and we end up leaving out some important details. Noah's told to build the ark, the animals embark, The rains come down and the flood comes up. After 40 days, the rains stop. Birds are sent out. A dove comes back with an olive leaf. Everyone feels land again and a rainbow shows up. That's usually how we tell it. We make it feel as if the whole process just took a couple months or so. We forget just how long they were actually shut up in that ark. And I'm going to quote here Noah from the Beginner's Bible cartoon series. Um... When his wife, they get in the ark and they close it up. And and his wife asks him, well, when do we get off? Noah says, well, I think if all goes well, the ground should start to peek through in about another six months or so. And, you know, they do it as a joke in the cartoon. But it's true that it is quite some time that they're on the boat. So if you're wanting to follow along, we're in Genesis 8 here, chapter 8. This is verses 1 through 5. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in, the, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of that month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the, in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So did God forget about Noah and the animals? Not at all. When the Bible says that God remembers somebody, What it's doing is it's emphasizing that God is steadfast in the covenants that he makes. In this case, saying God remembered Noah, it's referring back to chapter 6. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. We're being shown God's faithfulness. The world is flooded, 
And now God assures Noah that they will be saved. He sends a wind and the water subsides. He closes the fountains and holds back the rain. Some speculate that the wind was a warm wind that was used to cause rapid evaporation. I suppose that that's possible, but the key takeaway here is that with the wind is that God caused the wind rather than it being a natural phenomenon. He is the one that ends the deluge. The ark now comes to rest on a mountaintop. The text doesn't specify which mountain, only that it was on the mountains of Ararat. Because of the ambiguity, there's been much speculation as to which mountain is the one that they landed on. However, since the Middle Ages, most people uh, identify Mount Ararat, the highest mountain in modern-day Turkey, as the mountain the ark rested upon. There's no biblical basis for this. It's only a tradition. So if you feel strongly that it landed somewhere else, you clear conscience with that. It's uh, just a tradition people started doing around the Middle Ages, saying that was the one there. But there's lots of mountains in that mountain range, so it could have been any number there. Because the Bible doesn't specify that they landed on the tallest peak in the mountains, just that they landed on the mountains. So they're on the mountains, and more water continues to abate, and they are able to see the tops of other mountains. It has now been 224 days since the start of the flood. We'll continue in Genesis. This is 6 through 12. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him uh, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf, So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Noah uses birds to gauge the conditions of the earth. First, a raven is sent. The phrase to and fro uh, implies that it would fly out, look for land, but then return to the ark. And notice that it said until the waters were dried up. I believe Noah was using the raven to see if there was enough water receded to be able to leave. Because it says, once it dried up, the raven didn't come back. So why is he sending these birds? Well, they're lodged on top of the mountain, and the ark has limited visibility out of it. It's got that 18-inch gap in the top, right? Um, and so it's hard to see exactly what happened. So after the raven, he sends out the dove, and it returns. He waits another week, sends it out again, but this time it has an olive leaf. So enough time has passed that the waters have receded and vegetation is returning. He waits another week and sends it out again, but it doesn't return. So now this means that the water has dissipated off the ground enough for the dove to live. It has now been 285 days 
since the start of the flood. Verses 13 through 19. In the 601st year, in the first uh, month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from your ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird. Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Um, I didn't put this in my notes, but I just realized reading through here, when it's talking about the year, the 601st year, that's referring to the age of Noah, how, how old he was. So um, it's not that they actually had some timekeeping system that we had then lost and have come back to. Um, they gauge how long the flood happens based on the age of Noah. So that's side note there. All right, so notice what Noah does after removing the covering of the ark. Does he get out and stretch his legs? It's been 314 days. I'd be ready to get off that boat, wouldn't you? Instead, Noah waits for God to instruct him to come to the earth. He knows that God is faithful. He knows God did not spare him and his family just to languish on the ark. He is patient and waits another 56 days to hear God's voice. It's now been 370 days since the start of the flood. Finally, Noah and his family exit, and then they're followed up by all the animals, leaving the way they entered, by kind, although here they're referred to as families rather than than pairs. Animals are not typically referred to as family in the Bible. So why are they called a family in this passage? Here's my thought. It most definitely does not refer to animal families in the taxonomical sense. We didn't start thinking of animal families like that until the Enlightenment period. So our mind, it automatically goes there. We just need to take that worldview out, and we need to think like an ancient Israelite. So think like them. Why is it family? Well, rather than say pair or kind, family is used to show that the animals that we know today, they derived from those leaving the ark. They have a lineage and a heritage just as we humans do. Just as the variety of peoples and tribes derived from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, likewise do the animals originate from these families. Verses 20 and 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. 
While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Here we see why Noah had received additional instruction to bring seven of the clean animals rather than a single pair. They were set aside for sacrifice. We also get a glimpse into Noah's character and why he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. His response to being protected by God is to worship and sacrifice. When restarting civilization, it would be real handy to have a small herd of livestock with you. Yet, not only does Noah give a sacrifice to God, but he gives a full burnt offering. Unlike a peace or trespass offering, where only part of the animal is consumed in the fire, with the rest being eaten or used by people, a burnt offering is a total sacrifice of the whole animal. And what is the purpose of a burnt offering? In Leviticus, we have, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Noah is acknowledging that man is sinful, that man needs God's forgiveness. Was Noah thankful? Yes, but he also knew that he needs forgiveness. This point is reinforced by God stating that the intention of man's heart is evil. In case you hadn't picked up on it yet, with the previous five chapters of Genesis, God lays it out on the table here. The heart of man is sinful. This runs counter to the world's teachings. Well, this is what the world tells you to do. Follow your heart. If your heart desires it, you deserve it. The teachings of the world take the teachings of God and invert them. It doesn't matter that God said the heart is deceitful above all things. We want you to believe that the heart is always right. We don't care that Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. No, we as the world, we proclaim that the heart should be the driver for all our decisions and actions. As followers of God's word, we know where that attitude and thinking leads to. Sin, death, and destruction. In the case of our ancestors, destruction and flooding of the world. However, in his mercy, God promises that he will not flood the earth again. He promises that we will have regular times and seasons until the end of the earth. Now we're in chapter 9 of Genesis. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and of all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. 
From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. God is making a covenant with Noah and his sons. It's an echo of the original covenant given to Adam and Eve with some changes now that sin is in the picture. To refresh our memory, we'll read in Genesis 1, 28-29. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So we're still commanded to multiply and reproduce. That mandate did not change with the inclusion of of sin. What changed is our relationship with the animals. We were not intended to eat uh, we were intended to only eat plants. Now because of sin, we are permitted to kill and eat animals. Eating meat is a concession given to us. This is a speculation on my part, but I believe that the fall and the flood ended up altering the original intended nutrients of plants. And that allowing man to eat meat is a way to get uh, man all the nutrients that he needs. Vegetarian diets often lack vitamin B12 and vitamin D, omega-3 fatty acids, calcium, iron, and zinc. Eating meat gives the body those vital nutrients. For example, if people weren't eating meat, the Yupik would never have survived. You need some of the ingredients that you can only get with the animals. Eating meat is also a reminder that we are not self-sustaining. For us to physically live, something must die. Likewise, for us to spiritually live, Jesus had to die. We are fully dependent on others to live. Man is not unto himself. Originally, we were to have dominion of the animals. The animals now have a fear of us. We still rule over them, but instead of a rule of love, it is now fear. I'm not sure if you've experienced this, but I've had some moments... Uh, where just my mere presence created fear within an animal, even though I wasn't acting in a threatening manner. I have a pretty vivid experience of this one Fourth of July. Not many of you guys know this, but before I was married, I would work for Denali National uh, Park and Preserve in the summer, and I was out doing a rewiring project for some of the Park Service buildings out at Wonder Lake, and I stepped out of the cabin I was staying in, turned the corner, and ended up locking eyes with a very surprised marmot. If you've ever done hiking above the tree line, you know how marmots are. They see you from far off and just shriek and keep shrieking until you walk far away from where they're hiding. Right? They do not like people. Um, and why? Because they have this fear of man. I have no intention of harming them or harming this marmot, but he has this fear because I'm human. 
So I locked eyes with this marmot, and we had a moment. And I could tell it didn't know what to do and was very scared. Eventually, it came to its senses and ran off. You see, rather than us being a part of a garden together, living in harmony, now man and beast are at odds, and their natural inclination towards us, rather than love and respect, is fear. With the murder of Cain, we learned that blood is important. Blood is representative of life. Here God says, You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. We are granted the ability to eat meat, but with one restriction. Do not consume the blood. That is because blood equals life and life is sacred. Blood can atone. This concept is, pun intended, further fleshed out in the law given to the Israelites. So in Leviticus 17, verses 11 through 14, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. uh, Anyone also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. So as Christians, can we eat blood? Don't worry, Daryl. You can still have that nice steak. The juices that come out when you cook it, it's myoglobin, not blood. So we're all safe on the steak aspect here. If you've ever been to a meat processor or if you've gone hunting yourself, you know the first step after killing the animal is to hang it to drain all the blood out. But what about foods like blood sausage or dinaguan? Are those okay to eat? Well, it depends on who you ask. What God has made clean, do not call common, is brought up as proof that we can eat anything and everything. However, at the Jerusalem Council, James says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So clean, unclean doesn't matter, but not consuming blood is still important, according to the First Church Council. Um, But is that a command for all Christians or just the early church? The Eastern Orthodox Church believes that it's a commandment for all Christians. The Western Church believes that it was only commanded for Jewish-Gentile relations as the church was becoming established. So the Council of Florence in the 1400s, they made this statement on it. It firmly believes, professes, and teaches that every creature of God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Because according to the word of the Lord, not what goes into the mouth defiles a person, and because the differences in Mosaic law between clean and unclean foods belongs to ceremonial practices 
which have passed away and lost their efficacy with the coming of the gospel. It also declares that the apostolic prohibition to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled was suited to that time when a single church was rising from Jews and Gentiles who previously lived with different ceremonies and customs. This was so that the Gentiles should have some observances in common with the Jews and occasion would be offered of coming together in one worship and faith of God and a cause of dissension might be removed. Since by ancient custom, blood and strangled things seemed abominable to Jews and Gentiles could be thought to be returning to idolatry if they ate sacrificial food. In places, however, where the Christian religion has been promulgated to such an extent that no Jew is to be met with and all have joined the church uniformly practicing the same rites and ceremonies of the gospel and believing that clean all things are clean, since the cause of that apostolic prohibition has ceased, so its effects have ceased. It condemns then no kind of food that human society accepts, and nobody at all, neither man nor woman, should make a distinction between animals no matter how they died, although for the health of the body, for the practice of virtue, or for the sake of regular and ecclesiastical discipline, many things that are not prescribed can and should be omitted. As the apostle says, all things are lawful, but not all are helpful. It's very wordy, but a very convincing argument. And I think most Americans haven't given a second thought to it and thereby tacitly agree with the tradition the Western church has followed for nearly 600 years with the council there. However, uh, personally, I believe that we should still avoid eating blood because this command was given before the Mosaic law. Um, It was given to Noah and his sons and thereby implied to their offspring that should follow. It was not given to the Israelites, and therefore it's not a ceremonial command. When we hear it again in Leviticus, it's a reiteration. It's not the original command. And I know I'm in the minority view with this, um, and I won't think ill of you if you disagree. Um, But for me personally, I still think that it's valid, and it's real easy for someone who uh, is disgusted by the thought of eating blood to make that sort of feeling of like, yeah, we still shouldn't eat it when the the thought of it to me is is, is gross. I know some people like Dinaguan, but I can't wrap my mind around it. But enough talk about animal blood. Let's reread Genesis 9, 5 through 6, and we need to hear about the importance of man's blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Again, another callback to creation. God made man in his own image. Because we are in his image, There are consequences to taking a man's life. Notice that the punishment is for animals and humans. Animals are not exempt. Why? Because being made in the image of God makes us special. 
Being in the image of God makes our lives sacred. C.S. Lewis sums it up nicely in The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as of the life of a gnat. But it is with immortals whom we joke. We, we work with, we marry, snub, and exploit. We have an immortal soul made in the image of God. It's why abortion is such an abhorrent, uh, abhorrent crime. Here God is telling Noah and his sons that if a man murders another, he must be put to death. Genesis 9, 8-17 Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now God makes a covenant to all peoples and to all animals. The earth and its inhabitants will never be destroyed by a flood again. Humanity can take solace and relief in knowing that there will not be a second global flood. That's not to say that the earth will not be destroyed in the end. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away. But we do not need to be fearful of this impending destruction. John shares this with us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. God always keeps his covenants. God always keeps his word. When we look up and see the rainbow, we know that it is a sign God has given for us to remember that he is ever faithful, he is sovereign, and that he will protect his remnant. We can rejoice that God is merciful and extends his grace to save us from his right and perfect justice. Here in the, in the story of, of the flooding of the earth and Noah and the animals and all that, we sort of see a, a precursor of then how our souls are saved. So this is talking basically all the physical, right? It's 
saving the animals, saving humanity, and God does that. He is protecting them from the judgment that they deserve. And um, then we get in the New Testament with Jesus that he then saves us from the judgment of our soul and that he's the new sacrifice to atone for our sins and that God watches and protects over his remnant. And so it's sort of a a pre-shadow of what we see with Jesus here with Noah and the ark, that God is always going to keep his heritage and his lineage and that he's going to have a way to protect those who are faithful to him. And that's the thing that I really like about Noah and the flood is that you know, we, we kind of bring it to like a cutesy story for kids of, oh, look at all these animals. And there's really a lot more in there theologically of what happened. It's uh, the earth became so corrupt that it was just time to end it all right there. And that that's something that I ponder a lot of when you see how bad our world is, is how bad were those people that it was ready to, to hang up the hat right then? Are we better than them? I don't think so. I think what it is is that uh, our, the, our time's coming. Right? I think people are just as sinful as it was then. It's just that we're waiting on a different rescue than building a wooden boat and riding out the storm. So, you know, I don't think we should get haughty and think, oh, well, they were just so terrible. They were worse than us. No, I think we're just as bad as they were. It's just their time ran out before ours did. Um, and it's just a, it's a good story to remind us that, you know, even through all the wrongs that we do, the, the unfaithfulness that we have, the sinfulness that we have, that God is faithful through it all and that he made that promise to Eve that through her offspring that there would be redemption and he's going to carry through with that promise. So he saves Noah and his family to carry on that promise. And so when we look up and we see the rainbow, you know, it's more than just, all right, good, we're not going to have a, a flooded world anymore. It's You can look up and go, God is faithful in his covenants, and he's always going to see his will completed. And that's what I'm excited and really like about with Noah and the flood. I'm going to end with a, a prayer here, and then we can have a, a little discussion if you want or questions about about tonight. Lord, we thank you for your everlasting covenants. We thank you that despite our sinful nature and corrupt hearts, you chose to save us. We ask that you give us the faith of Noah to do your will when we are called, to have the patience like Noah to follow your will, that we have the gratitude of Noah to worship you fully for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Any thoughts or questions? Oh. <laughs>
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, a lot of times when people put it on flags, they put one less color. And so instead of a, the number of perfection and completeness, it's incomplete. I don't know if they realized that they did that, but yeah. Well, you'll have me again next week because they're still in Peru. And we'll finish up the rest of prehistory of Genesis. Um, and this will be with, I don't want to say Noah's fall from grace, but uh, it's not, not the most becoming behavior. And uh, learning how the different tribes and nations established across the world. And then we'll finish up with a quiz not a scary quiz, of, of Genesis 1 through 11. So thank you for coming this evening and uh, braving the cold and hope to see you guys again next week. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.